New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today, I'm hosting Rizwan Virk, an MIT computer scientist and author of The Simulation Hypothesis. I'm speaking with Riz at his home by remote connection. Welcome, Riz, to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thanks so much for having me on. How thank you for showing up. So I want to ask you, what does the history of video games and their trajectory of development have to do with everyday reality? I know this is a huge question, but I, for one, was not aware until I read your book about the profound connection of the reality we're living in today and computer video games. Yeah, well, you know, for for, uh, many years, video games have been the cutting edge of technology. They've actually driven uh, much of the technology that we use, uh, including, you know, this ability to talk to each other over the internet, right? Uh, and I was in, after graduating from MIT with a computer science degree, I ended up getting into the video game industry, which was exciting because as a kid, I had played, you know, games like Pac-Man and Space Invaders on Atari. And even in those days, uh, like there was a racing game called Pole Position. And I used to wonder what was outside of the racetrack? What happened to those little guys in the bleachers when I wasn't actually playing the game? And of course, I didn't know enough about computers back then. But then when I sold my last video game company, I was playing a virtual reality ping pong game. And it was so realistic in terms of its responsiveness that it fooled my brain into thinking that I was playing a real game of table tennis. So much so that I tried to put the paddle down on the table and I tried to lean against the table at the end of the game, just like I might at the end of a real game of ping pong. Well, it turns out there was no table. And I almost fell over and the controller fell to the floor because there was no paddle either. And that's when I realized that our technology was getting to the point where we could fool our brains and we would be unable to distinguish between physical and virtual reality. Now, we're not there yet, but as I speculated on the stages of technology we would need to get there, I realized it wouldn't be that long before we got to what I call the simulation point, where we can create something like the matrix. And we'll be so embedded within it that we would not realize that we were in a video game. And then, you know, as I did some research, I found out that there were folks like Nick Bostrom, a philosopher at Oxford, who suggested that if we can get to this point, if any civilization can ever create uh, these ultra-realistic simulations, they were going to create lots of them. Uh, which meant it's very possible that we could be inside one of those simulations that's already been created. We just wouldn't know it because, again, they're indistinguishable from physical reality. Then I did some research into the different religions of the world, both the mystical traditions and, and the mainstream part of those religions, and I realized they were all telling us something like this, that the physical world is not the real world, that we are within this world for a period of time, that our actions get recorded, and then that there is something beyond this physical world, the non-physical world, and that's our real home. 
right? And whether it's Buddhism or Hinduism, where you come and you play multiple characters and multiple lives, or it's the Judeo-Christian Islamic traditions, uh, which talk about the here, which is the here and now, and the hereafter. In fact, there's a, a quote from the Quran that says, we have set up this world for you as a temporary distraction, as a game, as a pastime, as a sport, so that you can you know, make riches and have children and do all these things that kind of sounds like the game of life. I used to play the game of life as a kid. It was a board game. And you had a character who went through life and they got married and they had kids, <laughs> like all the things that we used to do in this game. And now we do online with games like The Sims or Second Life or these other types of games where we're simulating life that even the religions have been telling us that the world is like a type of game and that the physical world is not the real world. And they've been using metaphors like dreams, uh, that we are in a dream and wake up from the dream. And then I went and looked at the quantum physics side to look at what they said. And basically they were telling us there is no such thing as physical reality. So I realized all three of these areas, whether it's Silicon Valley technology, whether it's the world's religions or it's quantum physics, were telling us that the world is not real, that it's like a video game. That's what I'm getting from what you said. And I, I just wrote a note to myself, base reality is non-physical. And then I followed that with, and even the physical is non-physical. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's right. all an illusion. But Riz, going back to, you mentioned the movie, The Matrix. And in The Matrix, there were some kind of bad overlords. <laughs> they were controllers. That's not your experience, I think, of what you're talking about as far as what this simulation is that we might be living in. Right. I'm, what I'm saying is that it's like The Matrix in the sense that in The Matrix, at the beginning of the movie, Keanu Reeves' character, Neo, thought he was in the real world. And later he discovered that he was inside a simulation, that he wasn't in the real world. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that what's outside of the simulation is what they showed us, which is kind of a dystopic vision of the future with AI robots, you know, who are controlling the humans and putting them in pods. I'm not necessarily saying that. I mean, the question that I, I like to ask, two questions. One is, why do we run simulations? And then second, why do we play video games? And one of the reasons we like to play video games is we can have experiences in those games that we can't have outside of the game. So for example, in this quote unquote physical world, uh, I can't jump on a dragon and fly around and shoot arrows at orcs, but I could do it inside a video game, right? And so that is an experience that, that I can have inside. And now it's very possible that in the video game of life, these experiences, the emotions, the suffering, the achievements, right? Uh, the high points and the low points are things that we don't necessarily experience outside the game. When people say, what's outside the simulation? I say, well, it could be us, right? We could be the ones deciding to play this game in the same way that when you put on a virtual reality headset or you go play World of Warcraft or Fortnite, which many of your listeners may know, you, you exist outside of the game but you also have a character inside the game. And while you're playing, you become so engrossed in the game that you forget for a little while, right? Any any kid who's played a video game and had their mom tell them, you know, it's time to, to go do your homework or it's time to go have dinner, you know, they'll, they'll realize that they got so engrossed uh, because of the interactive nature that they actually associated with the character in the game, right? And that, that happens to us in virtual environments. 
Right. Exactly. Well, I want to ask you, because it's so much up in our culture today, people are really concerned about AI technology right now. Sure. Well, you know, AI has gone through a lot of progress in the last few years, uh, and they're using neural networks. And we're kind of in this phase of uh, deep learning where we train these neural networks and then they can perform tasks similar to humans. And that's what ChatGPT and many of these other uh, AI models like generative AI that creates images, et cetera, can do. Uh, and so, you know, that's the good part is that it can help us accomplish tasks more quickly than we could before. That said, I'm not one of these guys who has a doomsday prediction about AI per se, uh, because uh, we we seem to be assigning too much human-like qualities to the AI. Like, why would the AI care about taking over the physical world, right? There was a great movie about a decade ago called Her. Uh, where Joaquin Phoenix played a guy who was having a relationship with an AI, which was just like a little flip phone thing with a voice. And and the AI voice was played by Scarlett Johansson. Uh, And in that, you know, he's having a relationship with her. And and then he asks her, wait, how many other people are you having a relationship with? And she says some big number, like 732 or something. (laughs) And he realized AI is working in a different way. And at the end of that movie, the AI doesn't take over, like in the Terminator, for example. The AI decides they want to spend time with other AI. Like they don't care about us as much, right? And so I think, you know, I worry more about humans with AI than I worry about the AI itself. I see. Right. So humans who have AI weapons will use it to attack other humans. But the AI is not going to care about you know, attacking the humans per se, it it has a different potential set of values. And that's what we need to think about moving forward is what are those values? Right. In your book, you mentioned that there are several very well-known astrophysicists, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and also uh, Stephen Hawking feel like there's a 50% chance that we are living in a simulated universe. But there are also others who are saying that we will be able to download consciousness into silicon-based life, so to speak. Yeah, so this gets into the question of what is consciousness, right? And this is a difficult question, and it's been called the hard problem of consciousness, is we don't know what it is. Now, if you take a materialist point of view, uh, that consciousness is really just emergent from the physical neurons, then all you have to do is recreate the neurons and you've got a conscious entity. Now, the way that's being thought of today is you recreate in silicon, not necessarily the physical neurons, but you you use information and you get a mapping of all the neurons and the connections. That's not something we can do yet, right? Because there are too many of them for our computers today. However, I just want to point out, they have, and this is very, very complex, they have been able to take stroke victims and they map their brain synapses and what lights up in their brain. It's a huge process of learning. So they teach the computer what this person is kind of thinking, and then they turn that into words. I mean, it's a laborious, it's not up to speed at all yet, but yet there is some good things that that happen there. Yeah. And so generally speaking, what happens there is what they call a brain computer interface. And so the idea is you read the signals from the brain and then you use AI to figure out what those signals mean. And then you can use that to get the attention. There's a video of uh, Elon Musk who started a company called Neuralink where they taught a monkey to play a game. 
a video game. What's the game? It's called Pong. It was the very first uh, widely available video game from back in 1972 and Atari. That's funny how ping pong keeps coming up in these conversations. <laughs> uh, but the monkey was using a joystick and they measured uh, the uh, the electrical signals of the brain, and they realized what was happening when the monkey wanted to move left or right, because it was a very simple game. You could only like, go up and down, left or right. And so then, you know, they gave the monkey some rewards. Then they disconnected the joystick, and they still gave the monkey reward. And so the monkey thought it was still playing the video game with the joystick, but the joystick was disconnected. And yet things were happening on the screen the exact same way because they read the monkey's brain signals at that point, and they knew they but they had trained it on brain signals while it was playing with an actual joystick. And so those are moving along rapidly. Now that's a little scary because that's an invasive brain computer, but there are non-invasive brain computer interfaces, which are like headbands that can read the EEGs. And that's one of the stages to getting to what I call the simulation point. The simulation point is when we will be able to create a matrix-like game that is so real that we can't distinguish between the game and physical reality. Well, if you beam the signals into the brain, then you can have like a full experience of traveling or going somewhere right. without leaving your home. But in the short term, there are some real good benefits, which is, you know, folks who've had disabilities and can't control their arm, for example, if right. we can read their brain signals, we can say they want to move the arm and then they can get some mobility back uh, with the mechanical device. That's very good. I know that you really see how this computer science relates to mysticism, that those paths are coming together. And in your two books, Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers for Autobiography of a Yogi, as well as your book, The Simulation Hypotheses, really brings together those two seemingly different fields. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I'm very excited about simulation theory in general is because it has the capacity to bridge the gap between people in the scientific world and people in the religious world, right? I mean, these have been getting further and further apart, but there are many atheists who, after they think about simulation and the simulation hypothesis, they realize, well, you know, anyone outside of the simulation might seem to us like supernatural beings. And they say, well, maybe I was wrong that there couldn't be anything outside of the physical world. Uh, because as I said earlier, you know, the quantum physicists are already telling us there's no such thing as a physical world. It's just information. And, and so, you know, uh, uh, the religious traditions have used many metaphors, right? They use the metaphor of the dream, uh, like the Buddha basically means uh, awake means somebody who woke up from the dream. Well, if you wake up from it, everybody else must be asleep. In the Quran, they use this metaphor of a of a game or a sport, uh, and so these different metaphors have been used throughout history. And you know, even Shakespeare said, "All the world's a stage, and the men and women are merely players, as if we're actors." And so, uh, Yogananda, who wrote Autobiography of a Yogi and came to the U.S. from India about a hundred years ago. Uh, and was, you know, called by some the first modern yogi because he would use modern techniques to to teach uh, in the U.S. He used an updated metaphor using new technology at the time, and at the time that new technology was the movie projector, right? And he was wondering why there was so much suffering in the world, and he got a clear answer in a meditation where a cosmic voice told him that uh, the world that we see is like a movie. It's like a projector projecting light onto a screen and using light and shadow both to create what seems real. But like the, the actors don't die. 
when the character dies, but that the suffering is part of the story itself. And so, you know, he had seen these reels from World War One, uh, which had an un, you know, uh, an unimaginable amount of suffering up to that point in time. Right, this was the first war that used mechanized weapons, right? Like machine guns and things. And so the scale of death was much harder, larger than it had been. And then he used that metaphor for the rest of his life, that to think about the light that's projecting on the screen and what mystics do is instead of watching the screen and being fooled by it, they look to the light, right? And that light is what sustains the world, right? And we have in, in, in the Bible or elsewhere, they talk about ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but really, in a sense, what Yogananda has been telling us that we came from light and to the light we will return. And so if Yogananda were alive today, he would do exactly what he did 100 years ago. He would use the latest technology to give us a metaphor and a way to think about the world. And he said, it's like a movie, but it's an interactive one and you can change the script and we're all playing together. Oh, guess what? It's like an interactive multiplayer video game, right? And so I think that's the metaphor uh, that we use uh, th that I think we should use <laughs> moving forward as a way to describe the mystical experience. And a mystic is somebody who is able to look away from the illusion, the Maya. Maya means illusion in Sanskrit, but it also means like a carefully crafted illusion. Like we agree when we go to a magic show to watch the guy on stage and suspend our disbelief because it's fun, right? And so we've all convinced ourselves, we've crossed Lethe, as the Greeks called it, the river of forgetfulness, right? And we've agreed to forget what's outside just like when I was playing the virtual reality ping pong game, I had it on. And for a moment, I forgot, you know, that there was a physical world where there was no ping pong table. <laughs> uh, and, and so that's why, you know, I wrote Wisdom of a Yogi was to try to bring many of these ancient yogic ideas uh, into a modern context and see what those of us who think of science, science as, a, as a dominant paradigm well, you know, well, what are we to think about these stories of levitating saints and people bilocating and teleportation and genies and all of these things? And so, you know, I, I kind of tied them together because in a simulation, you all these things are actually possible. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad that you did bring that back into the culture for those who didn't get to read it the first time around and hear a more modern rendition of it. Thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe today, Riz. Thank you. I've been speaking with Rizwan Verk, MIT computer scientist and author of The Simulation Hypothesis, as well as Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. And if you want to know more about his work, first of all, I'll spell his name. It's Rizwan, R-I-Z-W-A-N, and his last name, Virk, V is in Victor, V-I-R-K, Rizwan Virk. And his website is zenentrepreneur.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org, where you'll find over 1,800 programs in its archive. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for being part of New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you to please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org.
New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.